Welcome to Musonomics. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. So how risky would it be if there is no vaccine? How risky would it be to go to a concert in the United States? Too risky. Too risky to get on a plane and fly outside of Canada. That's Graham Henderson, the CEO of Music Canada, who commissioned a study about music fans' post-COVID concert-going intentions. We'll hear more about the Music Canada study later in this episode. In my head, I was like, there's no way Coachella's happening. You know how many 65-year-old-plus people live in Palm Springs? That's Jonathan Azu, who founded Culture Collective last March after a decade at Red Light Management and Superfly Presents, the producers of Bonnaroo and Outside Lands. Unless you've been living under a rock, which might actually be a good thing right now, you know that the coronavirus pandemic is taking a dramatic toll on human lives as health professionals and governments try to contain the disease. As is often the case, the music industry took some of the early blows from this global crisis. The cancellation of South by Southwest just a week before the annual event in March was one of the first dominoes to fall. It was no minor decision. In its 34 years, the 10-day event has become a major revenue driver for Austin, Texas. Last year alone, it brought in over $355 million. Live music events and festivals are, of course, dependent on large masses of people coming together in close, often sweaty proximity. Sadly, New Orleans became a hotbed of the disease following the February Mardi Gras celebration. Music people are really good at adapting to change and finding new opportunities for engaging people around music. In this episode of Musonomics, we'll talk more with Graham Henderson and Jonathan Azu, as well as music journalist Sherry Hu about the industry's response and what the future might hold for the live music sector. When Jonathan Azu left Red Light Management and founded Culture Collective in March of 2019, he said the company was created for reasons bigger than music. In addition to representing artists like Anita Baker, Emily King, Corey Henry, Luke James, Michelle Williams, and Leon Thomas, Jonathan is also an advisor and investor in early-stage companies. As government resources started to flow in late March, he was quick to work with business advisor Chris Van Noy to put together free presentations on LinkedIn on how small music companies could best navigate these options, an unusual move in what's normally a competitive business. I asked Jonathan how this project came about. When I shifted my world leaving Red Light, right, which was an amazing place to be at and was general manager there, worked with 60 plus managers across the world. And I always saw myself as an advocate. You know, I was GM of the company, but I always saw myself as an advocate. So I was always there to help advise, consult, and service a manager and their team for what they needed to be successful. And when I left Red Light and Sort of Culture Collective, my vision of it was always as a network of managers and a big part of our mission for the second year of our business, which ironically started a couple of weeks ago, was to develop a way in which we can network with other managers. And when I was watching the last two weeks unfold, most of the literature that was out there, most of the articles and posts and webinars and all that stuff was about what we can do as managers to help our artists, which is amazing. But Look at this, the, the, the landscape of managers. The majority of them are independent managers. They're one or two, maybe three employees, and nobody was giving them advice on what they should be doing as small business owners to make sure that they can get through this. And so I decided to really take a deep dive into understanding all the policies that were, were, were rolling down from a federal 
in state level and also from an independent uh, level as well. And I, I worked with somebody that I that helped develop my business plan for Culture Collective and somebody that I've worked with at previous companies on business plans and financial modeling. And I, I gave him a call and I said, we really need to get together a document that can help communicate to small business owners in music what they should be thinking about as it relates to, to COVID-19. So we put this deck together and then we decided to do a webcast. And I've been getting a lot of managers coming to me saying, you know, what are, what, what, are, what, are you, what are you doing? What should I be doing? What do you think? Because this is unprecedented, what we're going through. And the government is providing everybody with a safety net to help keep their business going. And most companies that are small probably didn't have much of a safety net for themselves. So here's your opportunity to get one. Is this work that you're doing now around COVID-19 education and relief for other managers directly related then to uh, you know the mission statement founded for reasons bigger than music? One of the things that I, I noticed as a, as a person of color in making it to a basically a you know C, becoming a C level executive in this in this business was that there was a, a, a massive lack of, of diversity in entertainment and especially those that own their own company. So I wanted to be an example of somebody that owned their own business that is of color and really pass that education inspiration on to the next generation. Um, so that's where, where that started. But ultimately we want to do great work. All ships rise. We want to extend a helping hand. And I always tell people, other managers that I'm around, there's a couple different ways into my world in this new business that I've started. And it's this high touch as we're, we're doing deals together. Or maybe we're partnering uh, on clients or other businesses on down to just lending a helping hand, right? Lending a voice, lending an opinion, opening a door. It's the whole spectrum for me, right? I'm, I'm, I'm blessed enough to be able to have that Cap the capabilities to be able to do that because I've been in the business for so long that I can I can make a phone call or you know open a door for somebody. So on March 10th, I think was the day that Coachella was officially canceled, and then within five or six days of that announcement, almost every other live event throughout the entire music world and the sports world were either postponed or outright canceled. Wondering how you're finding ways to address not just the live music revenue gap, but really this crisis with the artists that you work with in order to get them to move forward in other ways through this really challenging moment. So how do you do that? So I, I have I have a couple clients that, that, that have tours set up for China, Japan, and Korea. And those tours have been set up since December. And we so I've been monitoring this thing for a while. I, I joke that I'm the... Um, I'm the uh, the white sheep in my family because I'm not, <laughs> I'm black, so it can't be black sheep. I'm the white sheep in the family because all my my whole family's in, in science and medicine. My twin's a surgeon at at, at Columbia Presbyterian in New York. So I, I started asking about this virus with my family members a while ago, and I kind of knew it could become a problem. To be honest with you, there's a real sense of denial out there on this thing from a music standpoint. Most mm -hmm. of the agents I spoke with, um, and even even to a certain extent myself, was like, hey. You know, I'm monitoring this. I'm, I'm literally Googling articles from Asia to understand what, what's happening over there. And I'm asking agents about it. It didn't compute, right? And I'm on a few WhatsApp group chats with a bunch of different folks. And one of, one of my group chats is actually a Coachella group chat. And I'm probably one of, one, one of the older folks in the, in the group chat. 
And, and they were all in there saying, you know, Coachella can't cancel. It can't cancel. I kind of chimed in and said, hey, everybody, I got to tell you, I'm pretty, my ear's pretty low to the ground on this thing. This is a very serious thing, right? People were throwing COVID parties. And I said, this is a very serious thing. Very. Like, everyone needs to take this very, very seriously. It's going to change our business forever. And it ultimately did. Now, now that it's here and it's happened, I have... Um, I, of course, worked closely with agents and with, with artists to, to postpone and cancel dates. I literally got a phone call about a 60-date PAC tour um, that was scheduled to start in June that just, that just was canceled outright today. Um, it was a Live Nation tour, actually. And, and that, that, that's going away. We're trying to reschedule as much as we can. 2021, my head's in 2021 on this thing. When we come through the other side of this, how do you think having lived through the COVID-19 crisis will change the behavior of artists and fans? What do you think is going to happen on the other side? That's a good question. I mean, I think from a societal standpoint, right? So let's take, let's take one step back from, from being a, 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 music, a music thing, right? Just from a human standpoint, I think the world changes a lot. Um, the only thing I can compare it to in my lifetime would be 9-11, where you know, I, I remember just old enough to remember my my brother meeting me at the gate at the airport when I was going on a trip when I was in uh, when I was in college, right? And he he wasn't he wasn't it wasn't because he had a, a flight around the same time. I happened to have a connection in the city he was at, and you were allowed to go to the gate <laughs> and meet people as they were flying, right? Unheard That's of right. now. Yeah. We're all essentially at this point trying to you know make sure this doesn't happen again. COVID will come and go. That'll come and go. COVID-20, COVID-25, whatever, that's what we'll become concerned about as a society. So I think that that's going to change things a lot. You know, who, who's, who's remaining, who's left standing. And I think that in our business, music business, you have some businesses that are barely businesses from an economic standpoint. One of the things I've been educating managers on for some of these loans is that you have to be you know, registered in the state of California as a business, right? Um, you know, you had to have filed taxes as a business. There's a lot of paperwork that needs to be completed in order you to be eligible for some of these aid programs that the government has offered. You don't have those things because you were a quote unquote manager, right? And yes, you were a manager because you helped coordinate and uh, advise an artist's career, but you didn't have your business together, you're going to be in a world of hurt. You're probably not going to make it. I think content obviously is king, always has been king. Content's a big thing right now. You're seeing it all over Instagram Live and Zoom and YouTube. Content's going to be a big part of that that light switch slowly turning on, the ability for people to engage now with, fan, with, with their artists and stay in that relationship. So when that light switch turns on, it's not from a, into a cold room. It's into a, a hopefully as much of a warm room as possible because you've been engaging with your fans the whole time. I've been advising all my clients, get online, talk to your fans. And there's no judgment right now in quality of content. So don't get hung up with, <laughs> I'm in my bedroom right now talking to you. And it looks like you're in a living room talking to me. Like, don't get caught up in all that. Just get the content out there. Engage with your fans. Don't go cold on them. What live streaming are you encouraging artists to live stream? Yeah, absolutely. Live stream through IG Live. My team has been doing beta tests on a bunch of different softwares out there that allow um, uh, us to multicast to different platforms at the same time. The one we like the most right now is Ecamm, E-C-A-M-M. -M. 
Hmm. You know, it's client side, so you have to download it onto your hard drive. There's Twitch too. Twitch is a standalone. is also big. I have one client that is a gamer, so he's on Twitch right now. The days have got to be even even longer than normal for you, in uh, over these last few weeks. So, what's getting you through? You know, I have two young boys. I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old. I have a beautiful wife. They've been super supportive of me through everything that I've done professionally. And um, I'm spending more time with them. I'm teaching my son math and science. Those, those, are, those are my core curriculums that I'm responsible for on a daily basis. It's given me an opportunity to understand what he's strong at, what he's weak at. So that's been a lot of fun. That's getting me through the day. And then I'm just making it a point to check in on people, you know, checking on people that I work with, checking on people that are from my past that I used to work with and just see how people are doing. Uh, this is a super tough thing, you know, and it's going to impact people differently. I'm blessed enough to not have had it, but I know uh, just from conversations with people that have had it and, and of course conversations with healthcare professionals that are treating people who have had it or have it, 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 it impacts everybody differently. And, um, you know, I'm scared for what's going to come right um, from this, but one thing that we can all do as a society is just take care of each other and support each other. So I want to be a resource where I'm best at is helping people that are small businesses understand what they should be doing. So I'm trying to do a lot of that. Stay healthy, my friend. You as well. Thank you. Sherry Hu has built up an impressive track record, reporting for Billboard, Forbes, and Music Business Worldwide, as well as her own Water and Music podcast and blog. During the COVID epidemic, she's taken a particular interest in tracking the movement of musicians to the live streaming space and the pivots that music tech companies are making to respond to the needs of this new marketplace. Sherry, what's it like reporting from the front lines of the music industry in terms of COVID-19 response? It's been so interesting. I mean, um, for fortunately, being a writer in the music industry right now, there are so many potential avenues to explore in terms of both the short-term and long-term impact of this moment on just so many things about how the music industry is structured. I guess on one hand, obviously, there's a short-term impact of artists, concert promoters, venues, other people in the events industry, just losing so much money, probably tens of hundreds of millions of dollars at this point from, from canceled shows and festivals and just trying to unpack how all of those different people, I, I guess, employed in that sector of music are trying to deal with their, their own careers and livelihoods today and in the coming weeks and months. So that's obviously still a really important angle. But then uh, it's also a really interesting time to see people experimenting with different ways of engaging with fans and building out their own careers and presences virtually. I, I think one reckoning that a lot of artists have gone through is realizing that just building their careers around streaming and touring, where whereby I guess in, in releasing an album, primarily to streaming, you're not going to make that much money, but you're essentially advertising what the experience of your tour is going to be like, and then you make more money, a higher margin for you, the artist on the tour. That like that cycle, I think, is getting a lot more scrutiny nowadays. People are realizing that maybe that isn't. Either that, 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 that isn't sustainable in and of itself or that there should be more diversification on the digital side. Like it shouldn't just be streaming. There's been so much more activity around paid memberships and artists sponsoring pages on sites like Patreon. There's a lot more conversation, like real conversation now about virtual augmented and mixed reality. 
about live streaming, of course, um, as a lot of artists are bringing their shows or ex- other like live experiences online, various other kinds of virtual entertainment, um, certainly gaming and film and how music could potentially align with those areas, which are increasing in, in this current climate in terms of consumption. So yeah, th- those are kind of two parallel, but definitely different avenues and the decline of touring and then the increased interest in just so many more online digital areas of the music industry that previously were not prioritized because there's so much energy given to touring um, and to streaming specifically. Any particular examples jump out at you as being most notable of, of artists doing new kinds of engagements besides just releasing their music on the streaming platforms and touring? Yeah, so there, there are a handful of examples in live streaming, but both of which actually pre- preceded this whole COVID-19 outbreak, but I think could be an interesting model, especially if we're thinking long-term about the future of something like live streaming. So two examples come to mind. One, th- this artist named Hannah, an independent electronic artist, had been active on Twitch for for a couple of years uh, up to this point. The Twitch is, for those who don't know, is like a live streaming platform aimed initially at the gaming community, but now definitely catering to all different kinds of artists and creators. And I believe in October or November 2019, in fall 2019, she decided to live stream the entire process of her recording her latest album on Twitch. Um, she did it over the course of four weeks and so, like some days she was streaming like eight to ten hours a day in a row while I don't think most fans were like watching every single stream from start to finish just because that's so much time just the fact that she opened herself up in that way to any fan who was interested in seeing that creative process and she like uh, records and produces and mixes and masters all her own stuff so so it was just really like interesting and compelling to see all of that just totally laid bare and it just created a lot of engagement and buzz and interest around the album when it was finally released later down the line so i i see that being paralleled a lot in the electronic community nowadays in terms of djs going to twitch and not just performing like straight linear dj sets but um actually like screen sharing and showing their daw like showing their ableton or logic or garage band screen or whatever yeah. and like really getting into the details of how they're making a certain beat um, or how they're getting a certain sound, which, and that is, it's so interesting because that is very different from a live show, which is a performance. This is more like lifting the curtain, showing fans, like bringing fans behind the scenes of your own process, which previously was not that transparent at all, intentionally or otherwise. So that's kind of one trend I'm seeing and it has precedence prior to this year, but I think there's a lot more activity around that. Another interesting model that I, I would like to see happen more in the future is actually making live streaming a part of the business model around a tour rather than just like a marketing vehicle or kind of a nice to have add on to the tour experience. So um, the artist I'm thinking of is Emma McGann. She's an independent artist based in the UK. And I believe she's the biggest musician or the most popular musician on YouNow, which is another live streaming platform with very similar uh, dynamics to Twitch. So she was supposed to embark on a US tour over the next couple of months. And along with launching the US tour, she launched what she called a virtual tour pass, where for 20 pounds, fans anywhere around the world could get access to all of the shows that were going to be live streamed. And there's also some kind of online interactive component where fans could help influence like the set list of the shows. They could even help influence some of the design and the visual aspects of the shows. And I think because Emma had already built such a strong presence on live streaming, 
she told me that the sales from her virtual tour have made up for lost sales, at least in the interim, from her U.S. tour, which has now been postponed, like like nearly all other tours, at least in the U.S. So and that's just really compelling to me because it's making use of live streaming, it's not just for exposure or reach or access, but like also making it a core part of the artist's business model in this case. And it, it's it's a really good fit for Emma specifically, given her background, it might not be for everyone, but I, I would like to see more of that in the future in terms of, I think, yeah, I think especially in, in this moment where so many people are just in, in shock about the, the impact of the whole touring industry, just like going away even for like a month or two, I think a lot of more people will kind of put these measures in place in the future in terms of having a compelling virtual experience in addition to the, the in-person one. Do you think that the music industry will be markedly different coming out of the health crisis in terms of capacity, for example, if certain companies just aren't able to make it through? What do you think we'll be looking at, whether it's over the next couple of months or even next year at this time? Yeah, really good question. I definitely think about this every day and I definitely don't have like a set answer. One thing that I think is is pretty realistic, if not maybe a little cynical, is that there will be a lot of smaller businesses in the live industry that won't be able to survive. I mean, you're seeing this with any business that relies heavily on like physical presence and like some kind of real estate, like the restaurant industry is certainly asking itself the same questions. A lot of like smaller promoters or smaller venues might shut down. And then the people behind those operations who still need to make ends meet, still need to pay rent, might end up working for a lot of the bigger promoters and venues that are still around. So like the Live Nations, AEGs, it's bigger venues like Madison Square Garden in New York. And I definitely see more consolidation happening in the live space j- j- just by nature of how smaller venue really can't afford not to be open for more than a couple weeks or a couple months time. So I definitely see that. On a more personal note, Sherry, I wonder what it's like for you as somebody who just graduated from college, what, three mm. years or so ago. How are you dealing with this? How are how are you coping with uh, staying inside for what's been a month so far and who knows how long this is going to go on? Yeah. Thank you for asking. How have I been coping? Yeah, so I, I I was just I just started freelance writing um, right out of college, and a lot of that time was spent working from home. And so, in terms of getting used to that day to day routine, not much has actually changed on my part. Or I, I was pretty used to the concept of working remotely. I do vast majority of my interviews for my articles over the phone, just by nature of where people are. And so, I haven't had to adjust to that specific aspect of my current lifestyle. That said. Yeah, the, the, there obviously is the the kind of psychological element of di- like days feeling like weeks and weeks feeling like months and just like the new cycle moving so much more quickly. And so like not only does a new cycle move more and more quickly, but it's weird as a journalist to see also just th- there is, I, I have like directly feel just like the much larger deluge of online content that's now being published, like all the articles being published kind of about the same thing. And so... Yeah, I definitely feel like overwhelmed by that. It's especially interesting to be in New York during all of this because 
I, yeah, I mean, in deciding to move to, to New York for work, I was definitely drawn to the hustle and bustle of the city, meeting like so many people from diverse backgrounds, being in Brooklyn, having a sense of local community, um, especially among like local artists. There's so many music journalists living in Brooklyn that I've been able to meet. And so speaking of geographic barriers, like that's also something that people don't really, can't access as easily anymore. That's super important in day-to-day life is that kind of like local neighborhood feel. And yeah, so that's something that I definitely miss. Sherry Hu, thanks for joining us once again on Musonomics. Stay well. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Although some restrictions on public gatherings are lifting, the question remains when and perhaps even if people will want to return to seeing live music, whether in small venues or in large ones. Music Canada, a nonprofit that represents the majority of the music sector in that country, worked with Abacus Data in April to conduct public opinion research to determine how Canadians' feelings around music have changed during the pandemic. While people are not always able to accurately predict their future behavior, the survey captures how Canadians feel now about going out to see music again and when they'll feel safe doing it. How they felt about traveling to venues down here in the United States was more than a little sobering. I asked Music Canada CEO Graham Henderson what motivated the study. I guess what motivated us to undertake the study was the... Uh, our, our our awareness of just how little information policymakers and even e- even advocates for for the live and and recorded music industry had it seemed as if every telephone call i was on every policy session that i was a part of people were rampantly speculating about what people would or wouldn't do everybody um, has an opinion yeah everybody had an opinion and it seemed to be divided the room seemed to be divided into people who thought that the moment social distancing restrictions were relieved folks would race back to their favorite live music venues and those who thought mm, i don't know i think people are going to be cautious the other thing that we wanted to get a grip on was how music consumption had changed during the pandemic crisis so the the thought was to do uh, sort of a combine the two and and ask canadians about about their opinions of music like how is music affecting their lives what are they using music for and also what do you think you will do when social distancing restrictions are lifted sure and before we get to those key findings, could you comment on how the survey was done and how reliably a casual reader of the survey's results should consider whether it really represented the Canadian population? Sure. Well, the survey was conducted with a very large sample group by one of the leading public opinion research firms, if not the leading public opinion research firm in Canada, Abacus. So it was conducted online, 2,500 Canadians. We did it between April 24 and April 30. A random sample of panelists were invited to complete the survey from a set of partner panels that are based on Abacus's exchange platform. The margin of error for a based random sample of the same size is about plus or minus 2%, 19 times out of 20. So it's very reliable. And the data were weighted according to census data to ensure that the sample matched Canada's population according to age, 
gender, educational attainment, official language, and region. How worried are they? Well, I think the answer is, and it won't surprise you, uh, they're very worried. Now, we we focused on live music lovers, which which we'll talk about in more detail later. But I think I think it's safe to say that when you look at the population of Canada, and I don't think we're frankly any different from anywhere else in the world, but 73% are at least somewhat worried, um, which is a very large number. And interestingly, and you know, this sort of goes to the crux of the issue, over half of Canadians think that COVID-19 is going to and I quote, really change how I live, closed quote. So, you know, it's it, there, there's a deep and profound concern. So maybe let's have a look at the key findings. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference in the study between, say, you know, willingness to go to a small club mm-hmm. after uh, social distancing is over or to an arena show or to a festival. Once the the guidelines are lifted and cities and states reopen, whatever that looks like, how Mm -hmm. soon will Canadians feel comfortable going out to see live music again? So what were the trends that you saw? Let's start with restaurants. Yeah, well, (laughs) interestingly, maybe the stomach leads, Larry. Maybe maybe we all follow our stomachs. I say that about my dogs. Uh, (laughs) But in any event, everybody, the, uh, the majority of the population seems ready to go to a restaurant almost immediately. It's like over half. Uh, now, there might be a cup. I think there's about a third of the people who are going to wait a few months. But generally speaking, there is a real desire to get back to the restaurant for that dining, uh, uh, away from home dining experience. Maybe everybody hates dad's cooking. I don't know. But but when you look on the music, well, what about music? So it, it does, you know, the, the, the numbers that, that we are really concerned about are the numbers that relate to, you know, are you going to take more than six months? And let's just take Bar Pub for a second. So the numbers there are... of live music lovers will go right away. And 37% are going to wait a few months and 28% are going to go six months or more. So now at first blush, you might say, huh, that's not so bad. But when you realize that the business model for a lot of venues requires capacity or 80% of capacity, if there's a significant portion that are going to wait, then the business model is not going to be successful. Now, the six-month plus, which in the case of bar and pub, is sits at 28% of live music lovers. For small venues, it goes to 35 for large venues, it goes to 42, right? And it stays there for music festivals. And what this is telling us is that the larger the gathering, the more concern there is. Now, this is interesting because it may be actually backwards. It may be that pick your live large live venue, pick Carnegie Hall, pick Madison Square Garden. It may be that there will be better controls, better safety precautions, better screening, better cleansing, better everything in a venue like that than there would be at your local bar or pub. So hopefully right. that gives you an encapsulation. And and the last thought I'll offer uh, on, on these bar graphs here, Larry, is that the bar graph that I showed you is for all live music lovers. If I was to put up 18 to 29, 30 to 44, 45 to 60 and 60 and above and animate that bar, you would see as the pop population gets older, 
that the orange and even the red, as in probably never going back, that goes up dramatically. So the older they responded, the more concern there is about ever wanting to do that thing again. So ever, ever. Okay, so so let me ask the question that I think is sort of the elephant in the room or the elephant on the Zoom. And that is, what about likelihood of traveling to see a show or festival, especially to see a show in the U.S.? What did the data say? Well, yeah, interesting. You know, when we when, when we put the questionnaire together, we didn't have travel in our minds. Then it occurred to me, I, I said to the team, I said, you know, music tourists, that's a big thing. And maybe we need to better understand whether or not people are going to get back into that side of things. Are people going to travel? So we asked them if they would travel to a concert in Canada. We asked them if they would fly outside of Canada. They asked them if they would go to concerts in the United States. Well, for now, well, I'll just give you the raw numbers. But in the case of going to a concert in the United States, the probably never column jumps. So let, let's just give you, uh, so so here, here's concert in, in, in Canada. Will you go to a concert in Canada? 19 right away, 32 few months, 42 six months, 7% never. In the case of a concert in the United States, it jumps to 24% never, 42% six months plus. So that bar just shifts right into the red and orange. And I think that there's something deeper going on here, Larry, to be honest. I mean, we sit up here in Canada and I have to say that, uh, you know, our process has not been the greatest, but it has been orderly. It has been non-political. And we have actually come together, I would say, as a nation to pull through the crisis. But what I think is happening here is Canadians are looking south of the border at what amounts to an extraordinarily chaotic picture. And it has undermined their confidence in travel to the United States. And by the way, if I showed you that bar graph for concert in the United States for somebody over 50, the the red goes to 72% or something. Like people are just not going back, or at least they're telling us now they're not going back. Let's talk about music consumption in general that you were able to pull out from from the survey. What did you learn about music discovery, given the amount of the streaming of recorded music. And of course, there's been an explosion of live streaming. Yeah, yeah. Different platforms during the pandemic. Longer term, do you think that live streaming can be a substitute for concert going or not so much? Well, we were interested in that. So we asked people, we, we, we wanted not just to know about their fears. We wanted to know, okay, what's music doing for you? So as you pointed out, Yeah, streaming has held up. There was a dip. Uh, The dip was largely due to people refocusing their streaming activities on news uh, and uh, and on uh, binge watching the latest television series. But in speaking to some friends of ours in uh, in in media, they are seeing a return to ground zero, so to speak, uh, with respect to news programming. And like, in other words, it's normalizing. And the dip that live streaming of music experienced is now returning to pre-COVID norms. And what we found was people are using music as a way to relieve stress. 86% said that they were using it for that. 61% said that they discovered new musicians and artists, which is fantastic. 
And then comes the critical question, right? Because everybody's digging into their, you know, those Facebook and Insta and and, uh, TikTok live music moments from people's homes. But what they said was 84% of live music lovers, these are the people who, the lifeblood of the live music industry, 84% of them said, for me, digital content will never replace the feeling I get when I see live music. So that's very heartening. So shining through is a deep abiding love of music. It's important to people's lives. And I think what this helps us do is underline for policymakers that due regard must be paid to the importance of music and live music in particular in people's lives and an understanding that this is going to be longer than we thought and more difficult than we thought. So there's good news and there's some difficult news that that comes out of this study. But I believe it's going to help policymakers make better decisions. I think it's going to help anybody in the mass gathering business make better decisions about how they reopen. What scenarios have to be in place and Mm -hmm. by when for Canadians to be comfortable going out to concerts again? Well, you know, this brings us back to the vaccine, no vaccine issue. So because our sample size was so large, and I don't know the scientific uh, niceties of this, but uh, Abacus was able to do create some control groups and ask them questions about a certain set of circumstances. Is it going to be too risky not risky or not risky at all, somewhere on that scale, right? And very risky, not so risky, not risky at all sort of thing. And the three control groups, one was there's no vaccine. That's your control group. So how risky would it be if there is no vaccine? How risky would it be to go to a concert in the United States? And the number was 71%. Too risky, too risky to 61, too risky to get on a plane and fly outside of Canada right? Indoor concert, 52%, too risky. This is without a vaccine. And Larry, I think this takes us back to this. I think that there is a lot of misinformation floating around and people are really hanging on to this idea that, well, I'm going to get a vaccine and then I'm going to be invulnerable. Until then, I'm not doing anything. So that was the control group. The other group was, well, what about if there's a temperature check? And, you know, this is your, you show up at Madison Square Garden, somebody flash, oh, you got a fever, turn around and get out of here. Well, it drops from 71 to 60 in the case of concert in the United States. And what about rapid testing, which is probably more effective than a temperature check, but it drops to 56 uh, in the case of going to a concert in the United States. So I, I would say that there is still a lot of store being laid in a vaccine, which may not be in the possession of uh, the average concert goer. And then you get the question, who? So now we've got a vaccine, who gets it? Well, obviously frontline workers, I would hope, but it's a huge number of, and and now, right, we, we saw a number, or Abacus did, this is among Canadians. They were asked, there's a vaccine, will you take it? only 64% said that they would take it. I think it's complicating our understanding of the picture, Uh, vaccine, no vaccine, but clearly from our study, people are hanging their hat on that one. A lot of people are thinking, I'm gonna go back to all these things when I'm invulnerable. Vaccine will make me invulnerable. We're living in a rare moment, a flashpoint that for better or worse has exploded the routine of our daily lives. How lasting these changes will be remains to be seen. Music, the people who make it, and the industry that supports it, 
might provide a clue of what will survive, what will adapt, and what may flourish as we adjust to the new normal. The Musonomics Podcast is produced by Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. With many thanks to our guests, Jonathan Azu, Sherry Hu, and Graham Henderson. Technical production this episode from Nakul Sharma of the NYU Steinhardt Music Business Graduate Program and editorial production by Laurie Jacobson at Jaybird Communications. If you like what you heard on this episode of Musonomics, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute, and it's so important in helping new listeners find our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Musonomics. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can find our contact information at our website, musonomics.com. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Stay safe and be well. Oh, y'all sing pretty out there. Show it down, boys.